Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Hello, and welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Charlotte Bond. I'm Lucy Hounsom. And I'm Megan Lee. The best horror takes place when we are at our most vulnerable. In our house. In our bed. The best monsters are those we trust, because they have the greatest capacity for betrayal. With that in mind, it's no wonder that families feature so strongly in horror fiction. We are joined by Priya Sharma, whose newest story, The Ghost of a Flea, appears in Ellen Datlow's new anthology, Screams in the Dark. She's going to be talking to us about horror, families, horrible families, and William Blake. Priya, please introduce yourself and tell our listeners a little bit about your writing. Hello, um, I'm Priya Sharma. Thank you so much for having me here, Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm mainly a short story writer and I released a collection a few years ago called All the Fabulous Beasts, followed by a novella called Orm Shadow. Never made it up to novel length yet, maybe one day. So I'm really excited to be here. And it is fabulous to have you. Seriously, I reread Orm Shadow at least twice a year and recommend it to oh people. Gosh. It is really good fun. Uh, and I so want that throne that they sit on. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. The chair. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, it's just, it's so, so beautiful. So my fangirling over, I shall uh, start by saying the title of your new story, The Ghost of a Flea, will ring a very strong bell with listeners who know their Blake. But for everyone else, can you tell us just what The Ghost of a Flea is and what drew you to make it the subject of a horror story? I was very, very fortunate. Ellen Datlow asked me to submit something for consideration for um, Screams from the Dark, um, which is her... Um, new anthology from Nightfire. It's a kind of a bumper book of, of monster stories. And I, I desperately wanted to send something in, but I was I was almost quite paralysed by the idea of it because I think monsters are, you know, I, I was kicking around all the normal things, you know, werewolves, vampires, and I, I just couldn't find any an original spin on anything that, that interested me. You know, there's still a lot of mileage in all of those themes. I mean, I don't know if you remember... Nina Allen's short story Sunshine from Black Static, which got shortlisted for the British Fantasy Award a few years back, which was her kind of reinvention of the vampire story. And after reading that, I thought, no, I'm not even going to attempt this because this is so brilliant. So I, I kind of started thinking about the painting, The Ghost of a Flea. Um, I, was, I was very fortunate to go to something at Liverpool University. Um, they run sort of continuing education courses. And it was run by their history of art department. And the course was called um, Dreams and Nightmares. Through the course of the weekend, we were just kind of almost flooded with these amazing images from art, from different periods of art, from film. And the one that really stayed with me was William Blake's The Ghost of a Fleet, because it was just so strange. I mean, apparently it's it's only about 15 by 20 centimetres. It's a little tiny thing. And we have this giant flea this creature but it's not a flea as we know it it looks monstrous it's this thing of scales and he looks like he's on the stage and in the background there's a falling star and he's holding an acorn cup in his hand as though it's um a chalice and he has a thorn in his other hand 
And it, it was just such a strange image that I kind of, I wanted to revisit that because at the time I just did not understand it at all. So it, it sent me on a little bit of a journey and, you know, I'm no kind of Blake aficionado, so I'm sure there'll be people out there shouting at me through the course of this going, no, that's not accurate. But, I, you know, I, I, I did quite a bit of reading around kind of the, not only the, the painting, but his life and his marriage to Catherine Blake. And it just sort of grew organically out of there. And, it, and I was fortunate enough that, that she, you know, Ellen Datlow took it. So, you know, I was very happy. It was something I really enjoyed doing, actually, because I, I was quite geeky about it and the research around it. I think that's a wonderful story to draw inspiration for, for you know, for a written piece from an image. I, I love that. And I, I know Blake um, fairly well just because I studied English uh university but I actually didn't know that painting so I've looked it up and you describe it very well it really is quite grotesque but also ineffable and quite indecipherable I don't really I can see why you were fascinated by it yeah I mean it's it's amazing I don't know I don't know if you know art is a a bit of a jumping point for any of you in terms of of writing but I almost wish I was an artist rather than a writer I mean not that I, I you know I feel quite fortunate as a writer but you know, when I when I look at images of that, it just this whole mystic story there. And and obviously you'll know very well, Lucy, you've studied, you know, his written work, you know, you know, quite how prolific he was and 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 this kind of you know, thinking about um songs of innocence and songs of experience and you know, poems like Jerusalem, you know, what a strange mind he had. So all, I think all of his, I mean, I, I looked through a lot of his paintings around, you know, that featured kind of these personifications of death, you know, the idea of Albion, of Britain, um, that were really quite quite mind-bending, quite, quite strange. When you were saying about having a, a jumping off point with art, I'm totally with you on that. I have several stories that have just been inspired by an image that I've gone, wow, what's the, what is the story behind that? So did you find out what the story was behind the ghost of a flea because I'm conscious that it doesn't really matter at the end of the day you know what the story is because it's a beautiful piece of artwork and half of the joy of art is in your own interpretation but I wondered if you found out why he's so monstrous and so large and yet painted so tiny yeah it's it's quite it's really quite curious um he actually said fleas are inhabit are inhabited by the souls of such men as were by nature bloodthirsty to excess Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. And when I read that, it obviously, you know, I felt like that was a bit of a gift, really, as to where to start with this story. There's, there's two different flea paintings. There's the flea painting, The Ghost of a Flea. But he actually met um, a man called John Barley, who was a silversmith by trade and a watercolorist. So they kind of moved in similar art circles. But he was also an astrologer which I basically lifted for my story because I thought, oh, yeah, like that, definitely having that. Um, and the two of them wrote a book which Blake illustrated called Visionary Heads, and they were the, the visions that William Blake had summoned because he, as a child, and and again, Lucy will know all about this, um, he, he, as a child, believed he could see angels on Peckham Common, and through his life had these visitations, these mystical visitations, including the flea. And for Mystic Heads, there's a small sketch of the flea's head, which is kind of a kind of a primordial germ for the painting, the final painting, the ghost of the flea. And 
And I think he wrote on the back of it, and I'm, I'm probably paraphrasing here, but the concept that if the flea was built to the scale of an ox, he'd be an absolutely fearsome killer. So when you think about the, the mechanics of the flea, and again, I was kind of reading about fleas and, and Hooke's Micrographia from 200 years before William Blake has this amazing picture, um, you know, the first microscopic images of a flea these amazing drawings and he, he looks at lots of natural phenomena, but the flea out of all of them is kind of a double-sided, almost fold out gate sleeve in the middle of his book, in the middle of uh, Hook's book. And the idea that the physics of this creature is so amazing when you think how far a flea can jump for its size, if you scale that up, you'd have something truly monstrous. That, that was the thing that kind of set me thinking. And to be honest, reading through Blake's life, it was a bit of a gift because there were loads of events around his family and, and visitations that he had that really lent itself to, to kind of incorporating into this as a short story. I mean, I, there was stuff I couldn't even include. I wanted to put in, but I couldn't quite, it, it would have felt shoehorned in and, and would have kind of skewed the story too far really. But um, yeah, fascinating man. And his wife's role in his art, I think was very interesting as well. Well, it's interesting that you mention his wife because one of the things that I really liked is how your story, The Ghost of the Fleet, had a very happy, devoted, non-problematic marriage in it, which you don't always get a lot in fiction. <laughs> and I'm also thinking, of course, in contrast to Fabulous Beasts, where, you know, they're very definitely dysfunctional. Yeah. Um, and again, thinking about, obviously, Fabulous Beasts and Orm Shadow, where it's um, another family that doesn't get on very well and involves brothers. So having written Orm Shadow and all the family problems there and Fabulous Beasts and the monstrous family in that, what suddenly drew you to go, you know what, I'm going to write a functional family? What was it about Kate and William or Catherine and William that really inspired you to think that's what I'm going to write about? I mean, I think it was clear. I mean, I read a book um, from the 1880s by their biographer, who was called Gilchrist, who, who, because it wasn't that far after their deaths, he was able to get sort of primary sources, you know, he, he could speak to people who knew them. And I think, I think they had a very, very happy marriage. I think the only, I think the big bone of contention for them was the fact that um, they couldn't have children. And because of, he was, he was following a, a, a philosopher at one point during his life called Swedenborg, um, who suggested polygamy. And at one point it was mooted that perhaps he have another wife, which Catherine vetoed. And obviously he he kind of took to heart. Um, but by all accounts, they were very happy and she very much believed in his work and was very much an active participant in the creation of his work. And because the, the relationships with his brothers in real life and in the story, because obviously I've, I've stolen them as well, were problematic. I wanted them to be very much a happy unit. I mean, his his brother, his older brother, kind of disowned him after he married Catherine because she was illiterate at the time of their marriage. And and Blake was very keen to teach her to, lead, to read and she became quite an accomplished printer in her own right. And they both, Catherine and, and William, nursed his younger brother who died at the age of, I think, about 20. And they were the three of them were very, very close. So I wanted there to be a central, happy kind of unit. And I wanted to show that perhaps 
Blake couldn't have been the man that he was without her. And and also she was more than just his helpmeet, if you like. She was, she was very much an active driver within his story on the page and in real life. As a, as a writer who focuses a lot on writing horror and terrifying things, <laughs> it's it seems a little odd to then, you know, have something that's so functional. But I suppose in, in some respects you need to have the functional and the mundane in order to contrast that with the, the horrific and the terrifying. I mean, is that part of why you think it you know it can't all just be terrifying yeah absolutely and and I think as a writer I think I think the mundane's a gift because I think it's something we can all plug into and all we have to do is just tilt that mirror a little bit to subvert it sometimes Um, and obviously we all tend to sit at different angles and in different ways I think you've got to have moments that are relatable and believable within that sort of maelstrom that's sort of brewing around those sort of stories. I think you need a, perhaps a rhythm and a little downtime and some things that are mundane in there. Um, and at one point in The Ghost of Flea, I think they're arguing about not being able to pay the butcher because they, they, they lived in poverty pretty much. They were very poor. To make things real, I think, unless you're writing something that is very high fantasy, I suppose. I mean, and, and I have have written things that perhaps are you know I've got a lot of work that isn't horror that's just not been kind of collected anywhere and people don't really know but I think certainly for the horror for me to put the mundane is I think I think the I think the mundane can be quite horrific to be honest I think you've just got to spin it the right way an iron in the hands of a torture is not an iron is it that's a very grim saying you got there (laughs) the point is that you know I, I think there's a lot of things that that surrounds all the time that I think appear normal and straightforward that really aren't. One thing that I did wonder is about horror being in the extremes and whether that's why family fits in it so well. And again, I was I was also thinking about Orm Shadow, which although is mostly fantasy, does have... I wouldn't say it has horrific elements, but I would say it has human monsters in it. I don't know. Do you agree with that assessment or is that, am I taking it completely the wrong way? No, no. I I think, I I mean, I hope they're all, they're all fallible people. And I think most of us are fallible and capable of monstrous things. And they they are, a lot of them, with the exception of maybe one or two characters are very thwarted and don't always do the right thing. They've been twisted out of shape so far that they can't see beyond themselves. So yeah, I agree. I think I think there are there are they do, they are very dark dark people in that book. I, I think you've taken the point I was going to make and made it much more eloquently than I did, which was do you think that family is such a good place to to stage horror because there's always someone you contemplate murdering at Christmas dinner and it's not too much of a stretch to kind of think, you know, what would happen if you could actually do that? If you could murder your brother, if you could, I don't know, sacrifice him to whatever or eat him or, or things like that. That it's it's relatable for so many people because there are monsters, like you say, people who are flawed, maybe to the point of alienating others within a family, and that's why it makes such good um, horror material. Yeah, and I think I think I think it's it's the base unit, isn't it, for everything the family or for, for most societies. Um, and it's where all our formative relationships are, are born. 
Um, it's got its own peculiar sort of power dynamic. It's where the vulnerable, not just in terms of, of children, but the elderly or the sick, protected in inverted commas. And, and it's the only place where we're really tethered by duty and by love, which is fraught with all kinds of problems, isn't it? And and I think obviously family is is crucial, even even when it's in how we develop and and the systems we form for for viewing and coping with the world, be they they positive or negative. So I think I think for horror, yeah, it's absolutely right. For me, I don't know why I circle back to, to families in pretty much everything I write. It's the point where I'm actually quite frustrated myself by it sometimes. I can't remember who said it, but I don't think it was Ursula Le Guin, but it was basically something the effect of we tell the same stories over and over again. And I think mine are always about family. As as much as I'd like to break out of that, but yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I, I just I find it very hard to escape it. I think you're right in that because family is like the safe place. Well, it's meant to be the safe place. It's meant to be the thing that gives you that, you know, the love and support you need for life. When that is kind of eroded, when that is somehow, you know, it's like pulling the blanket out from under your feet. It's, that is terrifying to all of us you know the idea that maybe i don't know your mother or your father or suddenly your sister isn't your sister and they've become a monster and and you know the thing like the one thing that is meant to anchor you and as you said tether you if that is taken away is terrifying <laughs> just recently is, have any of you seen good night mama no i have not but i think i'm about to like it <laughs> Well, it, yeah, it was quite interesting. I think it was—I think it was released maybe about five years ago. It's um, set in Austria, and it's about a set of boys, twins, who mother, their mother returns after surgery, and her face is completely bound up, and they can't see her, and they start to question: Is this our mother or not? And as a as a horror film, where they went with it, I mean, I, th- I think I think people perhaps who are you know who are real aficionados will spot where it's going because it, it is you can you can see it but the behavior of her towards them you can see exactly it, it, there are scenes that are just very difficult to watch in it in the actually to use the word mundane sometimes quite simple mundane things in, in the way that she just talks them at breakfast and feeds one child and not another and meets out punishments in a certain way it, it yeah quite in, you know quite interesting and I think you know in, in terms of you know that the broken family and horror because the father's absent because they're divorced you know obviously I mean that's something we're seeing more and more now aren't we um I mean I know that the absent parent sort of thing has been around for a long time in low under loads of different guises from fantasy to to horror but I'm thinking of things like you know the Babadook Talking about motherhood and children and the mundane being terrifying, I wonder if you remember, Priya, a while back when Behind Her Eyes was on Netflix and everybody in Sarah Pimber's friendship group was sharing pictures of it. And everybody was like, oh, this is really fantastic. And then it gets to the end, the very final episode, and they just have one picture of the little boy in the back seat. And he became a sort of worldwide meme all by himself because it was this idea of, He's the only one who knows his mother isn't right. Yes. And just that that undiluted 
terror and foreboding. And you just went around like, you know, you think you have a bad day, you know, think about Adam and all this kind of stuff. (laughs) And you're right. It can be something as simple as he was just in the back of a car. His mother, I've got air quotes, had just smiled at him. There was no reason for him to be uneasy. And yet it just slammed down on you with utter terror, more so because it's mundane and because it's that sense of, like Megan said, having the rug pulled out from under you. Is your mother still your mother? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm glad that they, um, they kind of stuck, they stuck to the original novel with that very closely, didn't they? How could you not? I mean, (laughs) you can't change anything, can you? When you, when you know what the twist is at the end and the what the fuck ending that they were advertising, I went back and I reread it and I picked up on so much stuff that was Mm. unbelievably dark and sinister. And I'd never even contemplated the first time around. And then I was like, wow, you you couldn't have this book any different without, you know, spoiling the ending or, or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. I love the fact that sometimes horror is the familiar made unfamiliar rather than the terrifying monsters that lurk in the woodshed. You know, I, I think that's very profound and probably where, you know, most of us encounter true horror in our lives. Yeah, absolutely. Often it's very, very simple things, isn't it? And and very common experiences. I mean, you know, just look at the last two years and, you know, I I think real life right now is perhaps more frightening than anything else. You know, you've just got to turn the news on, haven't you? Totally. Yeah. I mean, it, it is a tough time for horror writers and there are times, I don't know about you Priya, where I have an idea and I go, that would make a wonderfully scary thing. And then you, you just open up the news to see what's going on and you go, how can I find entertainment in all of this terrible thing happening to people when, you know, it's, it's happening for real. But I think that's why, I think that's why Monsters and the Supernatural is always so appealing to me because it is that step outside. It's not humanity against humanity. It is something other for me. Um, And that's, you know, that's good horror that I it's escapism horror rather than sometimes if it's a bit too real and a bit too close to the bone it's like yeah it's not fun I mean I don't know I don't know about all of you but I actually find watching real life documentaries about you know um or dramatizations of, of difficult things actually much harder than watching a um a horror film or you know something that abstracts the real horror. I mean, last year I watched Chernobyl, which was excellent, absolutely excellent, but scared the hell out of me. And also The Serpent, which again was was fantastic, absolutely fantastic, you know, brilliantly played, looked fantastic. The, you know, the production values were amazing. The script was amazing. The, sh- the way they'd structured it in the different timelines. But, you know, this real life killer you know, who, and although there's never anything graphic to see during it, that the sense of peril is very, very real. And I find, I find those real life or real based in real life things harder than abstracted things in horror, you know, watching something, you know, obviously watching something that's post-apocalypse, you know, it's the end of the world, but it's set in a, in a abstracted background. I find that easier to filter. And And I think horror Sometimes it is escapism, but I think sometimes it's also about making sense of horrific things as well. Um, I mean, I remember watching Pan's Labyrinth and and really, obviously loving the film, thought it was brilliant, but finding it extremely painful. But, you know, the, the world that this little girl escapes to, 
isn't escapism. It, it's her way of making sense of the violence around her. And that's very much how I feel horror sort of functions for me, if that makes sense. Oh, oh my God, so much sense. The way you just described Pan's Labyrinth and the fact that the world she escapes to... It, it it really isn't like it's it's not a nice fantasy world. It's a horrible <laughs> fantasy world, like so horrible. And that fawn that comes to her yeah. is the most sinister figure in the entire film. And I was, you know, obviously the ending. It's one of those films that's so incredible, but you don't want to watch it again because it's no. so harrowing. And no. that 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 bit at the end when you think, okay, well, yeah. He shot a child. That's low, but she's finally, you know, like gone to the fantasy world. It's th- it's a cold fantasy yeah. world. It's so yeah. cold and lifeless and horrible. And so, t- to hear you say that that's how she articulates and understands the violence in her life makes so much sense to me. That that's you know, it, well, of course, it wasn't going to be a world full of fairies and unicorns. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so yeah. I, I'm glad someone else felt that way because I kind of. I thought the whole thing was very, very beautiful, but yeah, not there was nothing comforting to be had there at all, was there? You know, not for an adult, certainly not for a child. You say that, but I would suggest that there is perhaps something more comforting in a fairy tale world because there are rules in a fairy tale world, and if you follow them, then you can survive. Like the whole bit of don't touch the food, don't do this, yeah. don't look at that. Then if you follow those, you will survive. And even if you don't follow them, the plucky and the heroic can escape. That is the rules of all fancy fairy tales. But when you contrast that with real life, where it wasn't a fairy tale, there was no way to defeat the enemy. The enemy was too huge. It was too personal. And and I I found that really, I found that contrast really distressing. And you're quite right that it is a really, truly horrible fantasy world. But I still felt that she would be happier there. And at the end. I when I got to the end, it was like I have a pathological need to believe that she had a happy ending and that she went there and she was the princess and it was all fine. And I went back through and I looked for things within Pan's Labyrinth that I would point at and go, there is no way that can be imagined. Um, like I think one bit is how she actually got out of the out of her tower room and she did it in the in the story by drawing a, a chalk door on the wall and there is no other way she can get out other than the chalk wall therefore it must be the fantasy is actually true and she had the happy ending and she was at the end and I I can't watch that film unless I believe on that happy ending do you know what I I think I think it's just I'm so pessimistic (laughs) you think everything's crap but it's interesting what you're saying about rules actually because that it contrasts really nicely what you've just said with the scene you know where it's an awful torture scene in the film where he makes the guy count and says, if you can count to this number, I'll let you live. Oh, I think I remember that. I mean, yeah. there are some pretty horrible scenes in it yeah, in general. Yeah. But I'm just yes. thinking about rules and, and and not following the rules as someone who doesn't do as he says he will do. Yeah, so perhaps that I'm thinking of that character as a strong contra- contrast in the context that you've described, Pan's Labyrinth. But yeah, I just think I'm pessimistic, maybe. No, I, I'm probably with you, Priya, because it was, um, yeah, I, I don't know. As she was 
dying in the pool of her own blood. I was like, well, you know, that's that's the only way this thing could end, really. <laughs> I wasn't convinced that she genuinely went to some fantasy land because the fantasy land she went to was far too like a reflection of reality. You know, it's almost too cruel, really, to have an afterlife that is so full of its own horror reflections of the the horror she experienced in her short life here. Just coming back a step to what you said about documentaries and whether it's easier or harder to, to watch them. Personally, I think it depends on the type of documentary for me. I do enjoy is the wrong word. I am fascinated by watching serial killers and learning about them and what they've done and why they've done it as well. And for me, understanding the monster is very important, but I can't watch that kind of thing on the news. It has to be a serial killer who is caught, who is in jail, who is, their reign is ended. And I suppose for me, it's this idea that he, he or she can do no more harm. It is sorted. It is a monster, but the monster is contained. And most importantly, the families can heal because when it, when it comes down to it, when you look at serial killers, it's always the families that they interview and you see the effect on them and losing a child, losing a sister, losing a, a mother or whatever. It's just horrible. And, and I can only do that kind of thing and watch that kind of thing if I know it's all done and sorted and there's no chance of them hurting anyone again. Then I'm interested in what they've done and learning from it and whatever. But a bit like you, I, I have to pick and choose what I watch as to what I find will engage me and what will just utterly terrify me beyond any horror fiction at all. Did you, I, I, sadly, I can't remember the name of it, but there was um, something on last year on on um, Peter Sutcliffe that was really interesting because it, it basically deconstructed the whole police investigation, but looking very closely at each, each of the, the women that he killed and the after effects on their family I wanted to just take it a few steps back. So obviously when we talk about Pan's Labyrinth and Adam from um, Behind Her Eyes, because the vulnerability of children is obviously a perfect target for monsters. Um, I was going to talk about, you know, whether there were family monsters who pick on more equal targets like women versus men and women versus women and so on. But I think we're, we've kind of talked about that kind of thing in general. But one of the things about horror fiction and children is that quite often if there's a supernatural danger, it'll be the ch- kids who pick up on it first and then sort of won't be believed when they try to tell the adults. And I wondered, Priya, if you had any thoughts on what it is in particular about children that makes them so receptive to this kind of stuff. And also whether you think it's still a valid interpretation of family roles today when we've generally abandoned the idea that children should be seen and not heard and we tend to pay more attention to them. I think I, 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 this is probably stating the obvious. So I'm, I'm sorry if I'm, I'm perhaps reducing this a little bit, but I, I think obviously the the innocent aspect, the the imagination um, of children versus the rationality of adults. So they're sort of almost primed for for this otherworldly kind of element, aren't they? Um, and also perhaps being in some ways more receptive to things beyond the mundane. We've used that word a lot, I know. I think the only time when it strays out, out, out of that into adults believing, we've then got the hysterical, paranoid woman, haven't we? I mean, I recently saw a film at Grimfest in Manchester called The Cellar, 
which was great. There was loads of things I liked about it. But we have the belief of of children and the co-opting of children versus kind of the rationality of adults. But it was quite an interesting film, really, because we got that absent parent thing going on, whereby both parents were working and both at work where this key incident in the whole the whole film happens. But it's mum who kind of bears the guilt for not being there and not dad somehow. And we have this kind of, again, the emotionally absent father who's, oh, no, she's fine. She's just run away. It's not a problem where she, in her gut, feels that there's something wrong and becomes accused of being paranoid. You know, you're, you're being irrational. You're not, you know... So I, I kind of, I, I, I think it tends to, yeah, it always tends to be women and women with their wandering wombs and children who are kind of an easy way in because of imagination and not suggestibility, but I think seen as somehow perhaps more pure and open. If they're so pure and innocent and, and all of this, why then do children also make the most absolutely fucking terrifying monsters in horror i think that's exactly why isn't it because it's exactly what we don't expect i suppose i just the fifth child by doris lessing do you know what i've not read it don't know oh oh you should read it that still to this day stays with me it's terrifying in in the fifth child it's really interesting because i'm it's one of these ones where the child is horrific and you start asking questions. What happens when I hate my child? What happens if I blame my child for everything that's ever happened that's gone wrong? Or, I mean, not that I really want to big up Lionel Shriver because there are so many issues with her as well, but things like we need to talk about Kevin, you know, what happens when the child turns out to be monstrous when in a mundane way, but also then, maybe something more like The Omen or you know, all these horrifying things. And, I, you know, I, I do think you're right about the, you know, that we see them as these pure innocent beings. So when they suddenly turn on their head, they're terrifying. But it is, it really is something that, I don't know, it really sits with you. Or The Shining yeah. as well. Ugh. Yeah. Ugh. But, I mean, you know, and The Bad Seed by William March, which is a, a brilliant novel, and Small Assassin by Ray Bradbury or Turn of the Screw, you know, the the corrupted child. But, I mean, the, the, the products of, of us, the products of our society, the products of parents, we've made these monsters. And I think that is almost even more terrifying. So there's always that element of, is sins, sins of the father too strong? I don't know. You know, working on the idea that most monsters are made, except Kevin, obviously. Who, who the suggestion is he was born. Knowing that the child is part of you and that you are responsible for it and that you love it and you have all these hopes for it and suddenly it's not that is, you know, a terrible, a terrible thing to to suddenly realise. Um, and I find it quite difficult reading and watching horror films about children now because it's just a little bit too raw. It's coming back to that idea of it's too close to the bone. So yeah, my personal opinion about why children make such um, good horror horror plot lines is because they can be accidentally terrifying. Like opening the door to the bathroom and suddenly finding this child just standing there going, I have been listening for you, is both adorable and pant-wettingly awful. (laughs) 
I, I think we have different um, ideas about the word adorable, but that's okay. <laughs> I have also had cats sit outside and wait for me at the bathroom. It's uh, It does seem to be one of those things. But taking it away from that, I wanted to come back to something Priya said about really enough wandering wombs. Um, and we've been talking about children being innocent and quite often in horror fiction, you get the abusive father who is the monster or the very strong type of uh, female character who is a monster. And I just wondered with these very strong gendered roles, do you think that horror is perpetuating stereotypes and is in an effort to really shock us and make it relatable, is it maybe straying out into something a little bit more interesting and stepping away from traditional family modes? Yeah, it's it's interesting. I, I'm, I was trying to think about where we see a slightly different family setup within horror. I might be being thick here, but, you know, I can't think of many that are slightly more unusual, if you like, you know, we, we, we still, we haven't, we, I don't see many horror films or novels and I might have missed them here, but, you know, in terms of, you know, blended families, people with disabilities, you know, we've still got the two, two parents, two children kind of model, haven't we very much? Or we've got kind of an absent parent, you know, which kind of acts as a bit of a, a, a driver in this. Do you know what? I genuinely don't know. I, I, I would. I, my gut reaction is yes. I think. I think we probably are looking at families in a in a slightly different, perhaps more modern way that's reflective of what's going on. I tried my best to think of non-traditional families, any type of family that wasn't parents and two point four kids or a single parent and children, and I just I can't think of anything. And I hope our listeners out there will put some excellent ideas into our Twitter stream so that we can go and find some of these books because there must be some out there it's just perhaps um, they don't maybe it doesn't ring as true for some people if you know if they're not able to say well it's not as familiar it's not as effective but there's still a a lot of stuff out there that has not been explored with families um, that I feel horror is just missing out on really I mean how for example how many how many novels I mean I, I was trying to think of you know novels where we've got I think we're seeing more, for example, gay protagonists, you know, thinking of Cabin at the End of the World by Paul Tremblay. Oh, yes. Good one. Yeah. But trying to think out, outside of that, you know, I might, I might be missing a lot here. And, I, I, you know, I don't pretend to, to read everything that hits the books, the shelves at all, but... I think your Paul Tremblay example was very good because, yes, I wasn't a massive fan of Cabin at the End of the World. I much prefer A Head Full of Ghosts, um, which ironically is two parents and two kids. But And it is the kids being monstrous, but it was wonderfully dysfunctional in a different way, in a way that I hadn't necessarily explored. And it was very Shirley Jackson-esque in that you couldn't tell whether the haunting was real or in the minds of people or or whatever. Um, But yeah, Cabin at the End of the World was very different, very, very interesting. And I like the fact also that they had the... um, the people who turned up, um, who all had different roles as well. So, well, I'm I'm not supposed to be here, and I don't really get on with these guys. But we have to come and work it all out because that's what we've been told to do, and that's what our destinies are. I really like how we kind of threw a load of people together that weren't that weren't traditional and didn't fill traditional roles. But that's you know <laughs> that's me fangirling of Paul Tremblay, who I think is awesome and just such a great writer. But aside from that, I cannot think of anything. 
What about um, Katrina Ward? Like, she doesn't write traditional nuclear families. And I was like, if you're going to think about it from a certain perspective, the last house on Needless Street, obviously without saying anything, that's, that's kind of a weird family dynamic. I've not, I've not read it yet, so don't. No I'm not going to spoil no anything. Absolutely yeah. not. Would never do that to Cat. But yeah. <laughs> and Raw Blood as well, which is her her debut novel, which I thought was wonderful, is also not not a, a, a typical setup. Um, in fact, I, I'm not sure about Little Eve. Yeah, it's no, Little read. Eve is not either. No, no, there we go. So she's a, a great example to. Yeah, to bring and up. her her family in Little Eve is a very different type of family, isn't it? Well, it's a yeah. cult family, isn't it? Rather yeah. than yeah, <laughs> it's a found family, which is interesting again, and and is it perhaps an interesting way into the family, isn't it? You know, the idea of family, you know, something that you make, but it still kind of revolves around those same alpha parent kind of role type thing. Well, that's what I was going to say. Yeah, that you have the the alpha male who is the controlling centre of the family, which I've seen a lot in a lot of horror films and a lot of horror books. And I think Katrina does it in an amazing way. And it is very different. And again, it's that Shirley Jackson idea of have, uh, is it all real? Is it in their minds? Is it induced by something? It's just, yeah, even at the end, you don't know. Um, but I w- I would have been interested to see if it had been a woman as the, the head of the family, how different that would have made it and what different dynamics it would have would have put in. But of course, at the time she was writing, sorry, in the time period that she was writing, it probably wouldn't have been as believable if you'd had a woman at the head of it. You would have had a whole load of different social dynamics. Whereas obviously if you wrote something like that today, it's equally believable it could be male or female. So, uh, and I mean, I suppose my reading of traditional families and horror is also skewed by the fact that I really like historical horror where it's very everyone kind of stays in their normal gendered roles so although I do like you know thinking back to some of the sort of the kind of gothic novels and the post kind of gothic what what people like um Wilkie Collins did with women you know in the in the woman of white yep. mm-hmm. particularly you know our, our heroine isn't a romantic heroine and he describes her as kind of her suit um and you know she's she's not a romantic lead in any way shape or form but she's this very plucky passionate woman so he sort of subverts that and again in um his other novel No Name which which was a really important book I think in turning over laws around inheritance and illegitimacy what he does with women there is is quite interesting as well because they're they're although they're subject to the roles that they're they're put into and and law laws at the time around illegitimacy and and money they kind of shape their own fate and I kind of I kind of like that and even even in you know things like um, you know what's going on in Wuthering Heights and that dysfunctional kind of strange family unit there it it kind of it's I think it steps still steps outside expected roles very definitely I remember reading Wuthering Heights as a teenager and it being the first time that I'd seen someone like Kathy and Heathcliff and going wow this is you know this is quite revolutionary look how horrible they are yeah yeah absolutely well I think we have covered so many different types of family and horror and horrible families and a lot of William Blake and it has been absolutely awesome to have you on thank you Priya for joining us and talking to us this evening 
thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And it's been great to talk to you. Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.